0: I was hoping you all wouldn't pay attention to me while I was uh, wrestling with my microphone. <laughs> but um, welcome here. We are very glad that you're joining us at, uh, at Estevan Alliance Church this morning. My name is Jim. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here uh, at the church, and um, I am going to be uh, speaking to you for, uh, for a little bit this morning. And so before we begin that, why don't we uh, just say a, say a quick word of prayer. Jesus, we give you this time. And we pray that in this time, what you want to do uh, is what we would experience and what we would hear. God, would you be with our kids uh, as they're not used to listening to an adult for 25 minutes straight. (laughs) So God bless them uh, as they pay uh, attention in their own way. And God, enable all of us to be able to hear what you would have for us this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, Just to let you know, if your kids are making noise, like, that's okay. We understand that. Uh, and if you don't have kids and there's kids making noise, that's okay. <laughs> All right, it happens, and, uh, and that is it. Um, I am not originally from Saskatchewan. Those of you who don't know me, you probably sense that something was amiss with me, a little bit off. This is probably it. (laughs) Uh, I am originally from BC. I've lived in Saskatchewan now for about 10 years straight uh, as well as 3 while I was in college. So technically I'm about 8 years away from officially spending more of my life in Saskatchewan uh, than in BC. Yet I don't think I will ever consider myself to not be uh, a BC guy. Oh, this is the danger of having it all printed out. I just lose myself. (laughs) It's just ingrained in me. I think there's a certain point in your life where the place that you live uh, at that point is kind of imprinted on your soul and identity. And it's hard for you to truly consider another place home, even though it is your home. I'll probably always get my winter jacket out before most people in town, uh, and I will wear my toucan gloves until it gets above zero. I will never use the term bunny hug over hoodie. Starbucks will always, always win out over Tim Hortons in my mind. Uh, I don't, I don't hug trees, but I really enjoy being in the woods uh, and the mountains and recycling as much as possible and using our vehicle less to conserve gas is important to me, at least when it's convenient. Um, And I still don't know what to call the noon hour meal. (coughs) So I'm going to take a quick poll because I think this will help me. Uh, Noon hour meal, hands up if you call it lunch. Anybody? This, okay, that's good. I'm not in the minority then. Hands up if you call it dinner. Is lunch called dinner? H- hands up if you call the noon hour meal supper? <laughs> Breakfast. <laughs> Nobody? Okay. Um, what about the evening meal? Do you, is, is the evening, do you call the evening meal dinner? Hmm? Are there specifications, Bob? That's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Do you call the evening meal supper? Do you not? There's a lot of people that didn't vote on this one. Do you call it lunch? <laughs> is there another term for the evening meal that I am unaware of? Nobody? Okay. Um, what about the morning meal? Do you, you, do you call this breakfast, right? This is a thing like we are, we are okay to say when we say breakfast, we know what we're talking about. Nobody calls the morning meal dinner? Lunch? Midnight snack? Bob, no, okay. (laughs) Um, I remember talking with another British Columbian, Whalen, actually, about this, uh, and he told me that if they sometimes were invited somewhere for supper or dinner, uh, he learned to ask what time uh, he he and his family were to come over. That way they didn't have to have the potentially confusing conversation about supper, dinner, lunch, whatever. And I thought that was a really clever way (laughs) of addressing, I'm sorry if I gave you away, Whalen. that's your tactic that I've now exposed. I thought it was a clever way of addressing the potential misunderstanding that really isn't anybody's fault. It's the different meaning of words in different circumstances, cultures, and contexts, Uh, which is an important thing to figure out because we don't always see uh, the same words to have the same meaning as one another. For example, punctual or on time. For some of you, being punctual or on time means being 15 minutes early. Some of you means being an hour early. Uh, some of you it means being five minutes late. Or in some cultures, it means on time is whenever everybody shows up that's supposed to be there. That is when things get started. Um, the speed limit. There's a great variance uh, in our understanding of what the speed limit is. Um, whether it's 10 kilometers over, 15 kilometers over, 20 kilometers over, or uh, the limit itself or even five kilometers, 10 kilometers, uh, 20 kilometers under. Doing what is right. What do we mean when we say uh, I need to do the right thing? Do we mean that we need to do the legal thing? Do you mean that you need to do something that is selfless? Do you mean that you need to do something that is good? Uh, In your mind, is that whatever I can get away with? Uh, Is it civil disobedience with a moral reason behind it? Is doing what is right what the Old Testament says? Is doing what is right what the New Testament says? What about the word fun? Listen, If you and I probably have very different definitions uh, of the word fun. Um, playing golf? Not fun. <laughs> to me, this is me. Knitting? No. Watching Formula One? Oh, no. <laughs> Not at all. Camping in a tent where bears could eat you? You bet. That is fun. Uh, running for eight kilometers straight outside around a lake? Yes, please. Watching basketball and eating sushi? Very, very fun. So... If you and I were to hang out and say, hey, let's go have some fun, we would probably want to talk about uh, what you and I mean by the word fun. It would be a good thing to do so that we would all be potentially having fun. If your child states that they will be home late from their friend's house or an activity, you would probably do well to ask, well, how late? Or, what do you mean by late? Before saying that this was Okay. If your boss or manager states that they want a job done with excellence, it could serve you well if it's not clear to ask what they mean by excellence or what excellence in this project looks like to them. If your spouse asks you to help around the house more, you should probably not assume you know what more means, uh, and instead you should look for some specifics as to what it is that they are thinking uh, and hoping. Our communication with other people is greatly helped by being clear and specific and seeking out more clarity and specificity if we are unsure uh, what it is that other people mean. I think this means uh, asking questions or acknowledging that we don't fully understand, which sometimes makes us feel foolish, uh, like, like we should know what they're referring to, but if we can seek out clarity from others, it would help us quite a bit. What's difficult is when you have a lack of specificity in words and communication and no clear or definitive way to seek out the specific answer you were looking for. And so the passage of Scripture that we're looking at today contains a word that is really not specific, and depending on how you read it or take it, it greatly colors how it is that you can see this passage or even how it is that you can see the life and the work of Jesus. The passage that we're going to be looking at is quite short. It's in John chapter 19, uh, verses 28 to 30. John chapter 19, verses 28 to 30. Uh, John is in the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John are the four gospels. If you've hit Acts, you've gone too far. John is just before Acts. Uh, And there are Bibles in the pews if you don't have one that you can take and you can follow along. Or if you've got a Bible on your phone, it's really easy. You don't have to know what order it's in. You just find John. (laughs) There you go. John 19, uh, verses 28 to 30, says this. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. Jesus has been crucified at this point in time. He has been betrayed. He has been beaten. He has been mocked. uh, He has been nailed to the cross. And he is near his death. So Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, Put it on a hyssop branch and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, It is finished. Then he bowed his head and released his spirit. Did you see the word? Do you know what it is that I'm talking about? It. The word is it. When I read this, that word stood out to me. It is finished. What is it? What did Jesus mean by it? When he says that it is finished, as he bows his head and gives up his spirit, seemingly choosing at that very moment to die, willingly surrendering his life to death, what is he referring to when he says it is finished? There are some options that we can infer from the other contents of this passage uh, that we find the words in. And so it's possible that Jesus could have meant that his life on earth was over, that his time in his in his limited human body was finished uh, and over and that he would soon experience a new resurrected body and then ascend back to the perfection he had left behind to come to earth it is finished by it Jesus could have been referring to his suffering on the cross I don't imagine that even Jesus would have handled the pain of the cross like it was no big deal he truly suffered in a way that he had never suffered before And it's likely he would have been relieved for that physical suffering to be finished. Jesus could have been referring to his work on earth. And you see this in the beginning of the passage when Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And so it could be referring to his mission. But then again, that word, what is his mission? What is it that he has come to do? And so it could be referring to his work on earth, what it is that he came to accomplish in living a perfect life so that he could die as a perfect sacrifice unblemished for the benefit of all humanity if they would believe in him in word and deed. Now while there was still work to be done you know resurrection, ascension the sending of the spirit his intercession or prayer for us as he's seated at the right hand of God his eventual and inevitable return his work for this time could be considered finished or completed. In terms of his mission, Jesus could be referring to uh, the fulfillment of Scripture. When he says that it is finished, that is something that Jesus could be referring to. That throughout his life and through the writings about his life, we see the authors of Scripture pointing out where other passages of Scripture, prophecies, or predictions for the future contained primarily in the Old Testament were fulfilled. Specifically, those words that had come to be known as words predicting the coming Messiah, the one who would save and deliver the people of Israel from their, from their oppression and plight. Wise men were able to predict his initial coming through Scripture and by seeing the star that appeared uh, in, that, in that Christmas story. It was known by others what town Jesus would be born in, Bethlehem. It was known that Jesus would be someone who healed the sick, said prisoners free, made the blind see. That he would be from a certain tribe or family of people within Israel, that he would be betrayed, remain silent before his accusers, be mocked and beaten, that his clothes would be taken, gambled over actually by others, he would be given sour wine to drink, uh, and his bones would not be broken, and he would be pierced, as we see later in verses 32 to 37 of this same chapter. It's significant that Jesus' birth, life, ministry, and death lined up with biblical predictions. It gives his life and claims authority and credibility, power and trustworthiness. Even in the moment of his death, it should fill his followers with faith that he was who he said he was and will do what he said he would do and that he rightfully claimed to be the Messiah, the very Son of God, and that he would rise again, as he said, on the third day. Now, if someone does something significant, it's impressive and good, even if it's accidental or not fully on purpose or by design. But if someone does something significant exactly as they have said they will, it's awe-inspiring and memorable. If someone hits a home run in baseball, it's impressive. When Babe Ruth predicted that he would hit a home run and points to where he is going to hit it and then does that, it becomes talked about for generations. Jesus could be referring to in saying that it is finished to the fulfillment of the various scriptures that point towards him. Although there were still more to be fulfilled, even as mentioned uh, just further on in this chapter. The word finished that's used here can mean fulfilled or completed. And so this would be a good option in looking at what it is referring to. If we're talking about completion or fulfillment, we can also talk in terms of the Old Testament or Old Covenant law. The Old Testament law was what Israel received from God In the desert in Exodus, that set out how they were to act before God, how they were to worship, the sacrifices they were to offer, and how how they were to treat one another, what they were to eat, where, how to treat non-Israelites, and more. The law was there to help Israel to stay connected to God and to represent Him well on the earth. It was there to protect them from harmful things and to help make them right or good in God's eyes. Now, early on in Jesus' ministry, he teaches that he has not come to abolish or do away with the Old Testament law, as it's not possible to undo what God has already done, but that Jesus has come to fulfill it, that Jesus has come to complete it, to do what the law was not able to completely do, that Jesus was to, through his actions on the cross, provide the sacrifice that would make it possible for people to be in right relationship or right standing before God. Jesus would usher in a new covenant that would no longer be about striving after righteousness through constant sacrifice and fearful obedience to the law, but that righteousness would now be a pure gift from God to us because of Jesus. Yes, it still involves sacrifice, our entire lives to God, for one, but the system of clawing and scraping and worrying about our standing before God is finished. In Jesus, we stand securely before our righteous God. The word that finished comes from the root word means a turning point or the culminating point at which one stage ends and another begins. The covenant of law was now over and the new covenant of grace was beginning or more accurately was now coming to the forefront as the primary way that people would relate to God and God would relate to people. We are now made right by the grace of God. It is finished. Jesus could also have been referring to the power of sin and death over people in creation when he said that it <clears throat> is finished. Excuse me. <clears throat> the hyssop branch that was mentioned in this passage that was used to deliver sour wine to Jesus on the cross was a branch that was used for cleansing rituals uh, in the Old Testament. Ceremonies that were done so people could be spiritually and physically cleansed of their sin. And it was also used for Passover celebrations. The festival that was put on by God's people to remember their time in Egypt when it's described that God, in judgment, passed through the land, killing the firstborn of the households, but passed over the Israelites' homes, sparing them from this death in judgment. And so at the cross, we see that Jesus takes sin. He takes the wrongness of the world onto himself somehow. And he deals with it. He pays for it. And he offers forgiveness and freedom to all who come to him. Our struggle within ourselves, our shame and our restlessness, the guilt over our wrong done has found its stillness and silence in the redemptive work of Christ. And death and the grave What sin brought into the world, our final and greatest enemy, is described in Revelation 20.14 as being thrown into the lake of fire, destroyed for all time as Jesus defeated death, won victory over our great enemy by rising again in glory. It is finished. Jesus could be referring to so many things as being finished, and likely he's referring to all things. The brokenness of creation, the rule of the evil one, the oppression of God's people, the pain and sorrow of a hurting world. There is so much that Scripture tells us Jesus accomplished in dying on the cross for us. So many pictures painted of what he has done. Jesus could be and likely is referring to any and all of these things as he speaks the words, It is finished. Each one is a glorious picture of the power and victory of Jesus. We may find ourselves drawn to one more than the rest, We may find ourselves repulsed by one for some reason or another, maybe having not considered something being finished that truly is finished and complete because of Jesus. Now, like me, you may find it difficult to refer to any of these things as truly being finished. Jesus' work while complete in the cross does not mean that he is done working on our behalf. There is still scripture to be fulfilled, scripture that speaks of the return of Christ and the beautiful rewards of eternal life with God for his people and the renewal of his creation. While right standing before God is ours in Jesus, we still struggle with resting in that promise and not thinking or acting like we are earning salvation for ourselves through our effort and goodness. Sin still affects us all. We still do what we know is not good and we don't do what we know to be right. And even though Scripture says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? Death still robs people in peace and joy from us when it inevitably invades our lives. So what does it mean for us that Jesus declares these things to be finished? completed, fulfilled, done while we still experience their reality. There's a term that was used in Bible college and and is used in in other places to describe a lot of this type of language that we find in the New Testament. Where there is victory over death yet our bodies still fade and we still die. Where we are not under the power or control of sin yet we still do sinful or wrong and hurtful things. This is referred to by some as the now and not yet. That we have victory over sin and death now, but the full picture of that is still not yet. It's kind of like spring. (laughs) It's spring in Saskatchewan, but it's not spring in Saskatchewan. (laughs) The snow is there, the flowers are not around, the grass is not green, it does not feel like spring, yet it is declared that it is spring. It's also, as I was reflecting on this a little bit, to try to bring you maybe a helpful picture, and I hope this can be helpful, that it's kind of like adulthood. In our world or in different traditions, when you become 18, 19, 20, or 21, again, depending on your province or country or residence or worldview or tradition, you are legally considered an adult. Along with the title of adult comes a whole lot of rights and responsibility. And while these things are now yours, you also spend the next 5, 10, 20, or 50 years even trying to figure out what it actually means to be an adult. And what it looks like in your life, and what it looks like in the different phases and stages of your life. You're now an adult, but you're still not yet an adult. Or, you could compare it to getting your certification or degree for a career. You've done the work, you've paid the money to be considered a teacher, a plumber, an engineer, a welder, a fitness coach, etc. You have the knowledge of what you were to do and when you get a job, you could say of yourself, I am now this. But there is still so much to learn to truly understand or to master what it means to be what you have trained for. You are not yet fully who you will be in your job or career or passion. Now, I don't know about you, but I can struggle with feeling like I don't measure up in some things. I think it can be easy to ask whether we should actually be a pastor or a teacher or an engineer or an electrician, especially when things don't seem to be going the way that we thought they would or that we thought they should. It's quite natural and normal to question whether we find ourselves uh, or whether we have placed ourselves or whether we've been placed by another on the right path in life. In these instances, at least in my own career, uh, I can point back to the degree that I earned and was given, or I can remind myself of my several interviews I have gone through to become and continue to be an approved worker as decided by people who know better than me. I can remind myself of my calling to ministry where I felt God moved me in this direction, or I can think about the significant people in my life who have spoken words of encouragement and meaning to me of my belonging within church work. When I don't feel that I am yet who I want to be, it's important to remember those moments where I was told that I now am uh, the thing that I am. It's also possible to struggle with feeling like a capable adult. (laughs) Do you ever have those days where you just want to shut out all of the responsibility you have and just do the things you used to do as a kid? Or those days where you just can't get yourself together and it feels like things that other adults can do blindfolded you struggle to even come close to achieving? It can be harder at those times to find things that remind us that we are actually, in fact, an adult and maybe even a responsible adult. (laughs) There are some cultures that have uh, what is referred to as as a rite of passage for their young people as they transition from childhood to adulthood. <clears throat> I read these things on the internet, so take them for what they're worth, as they, uh, the internet is not always true about everything. <laughs> but I did read that in the Brazilian Amazon, there is a tribe that weaves sedated bullet ants into a glove uh, for 13-year-old boys to wear, uh, once the ant sedation wears off, um, for about 10 minutes upwards of 20 times over a few weeks uh, or months. After they've completed it, (laughs) they are now considered a man. I don't like it. Uh, Rumspringa. again, what I read is, uh, for when Amish teenagers turn 16, that they are given leave of their home to go and experience the world. And if they come back to their home and colony, it is now by their choice to stay Uh, After seeing what else the world has to offer. Also, apparently, in Ethiopia, some grooms, as they uh, are going to be married, have to jump over a cow four times while naked uh, to symbolize leaving behind their childhood. Perhaps (laughs) uh, you went, maybe you yourselves went on a trip with friends or family. Maybe you had a really big party. Maybe you did a survival camp out, or it's possible that you had a car bought for you uh, and that these things were intended to symbolize your uh, becoming an adult, your transition from childhood to adulthood. The beauty in my mind of a rite of passage like this, maybe other than the bullet ants, <laughs> is that when you are doubting that you are truly an adult, you can point back to these events and remember the significance and the meaningful transition, and even the struggle that you went through where your community then said to you, yes, you are an adult. These types of things, I believe, can get you through some hard times. Our confession of faith in Jesus, our baptism before our community and family of faith, Our faith commitment to a certain decision or a particular line of work or life priority can all be moments that we remember and look back on when the not yet of Christ's work in us is outweighing or overwhelming our now reality of our life in Him. So too, when we look around at our world, when the curtain is pulled back on the brokenness in our relationships or our families, when we are let down or hurt once again, when the news we see oppresses our soul and works to destroy our heart and hope, when things do not seem to be as they should be, and the power of sin and death seems stronger than any other, we can look back to the resurrection of Jesus. His victory over sin and death as a sign and promise fulfilled that God truly, truly has won the victory. That this is his world and we are his people. Bought for a price and given freely the gift of life. On Easter we are reminded that Jesus is enough. His work is enough. What has been done by him will not be left incomplete. Those he has begun a good work in will not be abandoned. And the world he has already but not yet restored will see the completion of what he began and completed with the cross. Because as he said, it is finished. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for this hope that we can have because you rose again. We thank you that in rising again, you defeated what we are not able to defeat, that you fought a battle that we are not able to win, and that you have given us the benefit of this, that we can experience life and freedom and joy and peace all because of you. Help us to not be too proud. Help us to not be too independent. Help us to not be too fearful, even, God, of giving ourselves over to you to trust you, to enable you to be able to do these things in our life. You are gentle. You are humble. God, thank you that our lives are precious in your sight, that you treat us kindly uh, in your hands. And so, Father, as we struggle with the not yet (coughs) of the realities that we see uh, within our own hearts, within our relationships, within our world, I do pray that you would encourage us to say, to remind us to remember that you have said it is finished. To believe you, to see that you have done the things that you have said you're going to do and that you will continue to do the things uh, that you have said you will do. You are faithful, you are good, you are trustworthy, you are true. We give you all of the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.